Hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue podcast. I'm Ian Cheeseman. Thanks very much for your company. I'm indebted to the Charles Louis Group, who are the sponsors of this podcast. They're an advisory business. I know them very well. I've been to their offices in Ramsbottom. I've met with several of the people who work there, thoroughly professional, very lovely people as well. They advise on the development of finance, mortgage advice and estate agency. They started life as a simple mortgage company offering buy to let, first time buyer, moving home mortgages, that sort of thing. But now they provide support to the whole property transaction process, including independent estate agents. And they are an expert on commercial finance. They have a team that looks after that as well and a very renowned mortgage team. CharlesLouis.co.uk. That's all one word. So Charles, L-O-U-I-S.co.uk is their website. Have a look at it. They've got a phone number on there. Give them a call. Tell them you've heard about them on the Forever Blue podcast. And I'm sure they'll give you even better service than you might normally get. Now, I have three guests with me today on this podcast. Uh, they are uh, the regular Paul, who is uh, from Prestige Car Repairs, who uh, we hear from from time to time. We've also got the General Secretary of City Supporters Club, who's actually becoming quite a regular himself, uh, Kevin Parker, and uh, an ex-City player, uh, one I thoroughly enjoyed watching, uh, an international, um, a silky midfielder with a ferocious shot, um, who you might remember, for example, in that era in the mid-80s when City beat Charlton and that, 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 that type of an era. And that man is David Phillips, who is also a very eloquent <coughs> and very renowned pundit. So, David, um, thanks very much for joining us. Um, obviously, we've got a lot of things we can talk about tonight. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that as we're recording this podcast on a Monday evening uh, in the UK, we're just hearing that hopefully... There is a virus um, beta, i.e. a vaccine on the way. And that, as a football fan, as well as being a human being, is great news. And I'm sure we're all delighted that uh, there might be a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. But where we are at the moment, um, still seeing uh, the games being principally played behind closed doors. Um, yesterday, which was match day for City, I was lucky enough to be at Wigan. Uh, where Chorley won in the FA Cup. Fantastic to see that, albeit in an empty stadium. And I can't deny, even though I'm an out-and-out blue, that in the pit of my stomach, I really got excited when Chorley started fighting back. I actually quite like Wigan, believe it or not. But as Chorley (laughs) came fighting back and won that game, it was great to get that old emotion, you know, back, that, that emotion that's... I can't deny has been missing a little bit for me watching the games on TV of late. And I just hope that we're all back in the stadiums feeling that emotion again very, very soon. So the question I'm going to start off with, and all three of you can answer it, but what we'll start with our special guest, David, today is a very simple one, really, which is, did you enjoy City's one-all draw against Liverpool? Now, you could take that answer wherever you want to, David, but that's the fundamental question. Did you enjoy the game? I'll tell you what, Ian, the, the way the game started, especially the first 20, 25 minutes, no, I didn't enjoy it one iota. I just thought that Liverpool, with the system that they played, they played like a, a 4-2-4. You know, they were quick, they were sharp. City looked very nervous at the back. And, uh, you know, a rash decision from, uh, from Kyle Walker to give Liverpool the penalty to start off with. It was a no-brainer, really, for the referee. No VAR needed to be involved in that one at all. 
Um, but then, you know, when Jesus scores his goal, you know, that is just a phenomenal goal. You know, that is so instinctive. You can't coach that. You can't teach that as a coach. You know, De Bruyne does really well, but it's the touch from Jesus. And yes, it is a toe poker at the end. People in, in the media turn around and say, well, it wasn't the greatest of touches. He was very fortunate. He was very lucky. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal, the actual touch from Jesus. But you have to say that the response from, from City after going behind, I thought Liverpool were on their front foot. I thought they were exceptional. And the second half wasn't as, as good as the first half. Maybe both managers had a word with each other and decided, well, hold on, let's, let's call this quits. But even so, Jesus had a, another great opportunity, a header from uh, Cancelo. Uh, could have wrapped up the game in the end. But um, my first thought, thoughts when I was watching the game as it first started, I thought, Blimey, Liverpool are really in top form. But, you know, a lot of credit to, to Manchester City for, for, for coming back. De Bruyne and missing the penalty. You don't see that very often. Um, but I thought there were a few players who were under par yesterday. You know, and I was a little bit disappointed with that. Who were the players that you thought were under par then, David? Well, I thought Rodri didn't have a, a particularly good game. Uh, I thought he gave away possession far too many times. Uh, Kyle Walker was obviously rash with the, the, the challenge, but I thought his distribution wasn't that particularly great. Uh, Cancelo, you know, this is, a, this is always a contentious one. You know, you've got a right-footed right-back playing as a left-back. You've got Zinchenko who's on the bench, who's a naturalised left-back, uh, could have possibly played there. But I think that Guardiola went there just purely on the basis of the pace that Liverpool possessed, especially going down the flanks. And Cancelo is quick. Walker is quick, Zinchenko not as quick, um, but I just felt De Bruyne wasn't really up to it as, as much as he normally. The thing is, you always expect De Bruyne to give you a nine out of ten week in, week out, and when he gives you a seven, people get a little bit disappointed. You know, Gundogan was 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 okay. The two centre halves were okay, uh, and that's the thing. It was okay. It wasn't it wasn't good, a good enough performance as far as I'm concerned to try and get the three points. However, after the first 20 minutes, I would have taken a point. So overall, did you enjoy it? <laughs> did I enjoy it? Not, not, not really. Not really. It could have been better. It could have been better, to be, to be honest with you. Uh, as far as performances are concerned, um, like I said, the first <laughs> 25 minutes, I was fearing what was happening. I thought Liverpool were, were exceptional, but City came back into the game, you know, and they could have won it in the end. Yes, they had missed the penalty. Uh, Jesus had a, a great opportunity. You have to say as well that uh, Edison made a great save as well from Trent Alexander-Arnold. Um, so on the balance of play, maybe a point was a, a decent point for both sides. We'll come back to the right-footed left-back because uh, you make a good point there. It's one that a lot of fans have spoken about a little bit later on. Well, let me go to Kevin next and say the same question. Did you enjoy the game, Kevin? Well, it, it, you, when you, the build-up to those games these days, you can't enjoy them. It's very much like the old derby games um, when you're playing Liverpool these days. There's so much on the line and there's so much... To lose, I can't remember the last time we went into a game against Liverpool and it, it wasn't pivotal for one way or the other, either when we were chasing them, when we were uh, 10 points behind them or when we played them in the Champions League or uh, last season when we were at Anfield where I think they then went something like nine points ahead of us. There's never a game where you go into where there's nothing on the line these days with Liverpool. So 
I don't think you enjoy it, the build-up to it. I don't think you enjoy it during the game because you've everything to lose, really. And then after the game, you're a bit frustrated when you look back. I thought for the first 20, yeah, first 20, 25 minutes, they looked very dangerous. I mean, they looked like Liverpool can do when they're on form in, in terms of when they're, they're attacking. And of course, they went with four. I think that surprised everybody when they went with four. Uh, playing Firmino and uh, Jota, I think, was a surprise. Um, I think for 20 minutes, um, the last 20 minutes of the first half, we came into it. I thought we, we looked better. There was a, a great ball across the box from De Bruyne to Sterling, where I think he probably should have knocked that back first time to uh, Jesus. Uh, there was the goal, of course. Then we had the penalty. So I think Liverpool had the first 25 minutes. We had the second 20. The second half, I think both teams pretty much cancelled each other out. I think we, if anything, were the slightly better team, but you would expect us to be when we're playing at home. And we just didn't quite have the tempo, did we? I think there was an opportunity probably after 60, 65 minutes to have changed that to maybe have brought Foden on. He could probably even have, have taken off either Gundogan um, or Rodri and dropped De Bruyne back a little bit and brought um, uh, Foden on just to give us a little bit of tempo, I think. Because I think if we'd have... And there was a great chance for Jesus, I agree, from a, a good ball in from Cancelo that uh, we had the chance. But I think if we'd have picked the tempo up, I'm not quite sure that Liverpool would have been able to in the second half. Um, so did I enjoy it? I, I probably agree with David. After going 1-0 down in the end, I'd have taken a draw. Frustratingly, I think missing a penalty always leads you thinking what might have been. It's just one of those games that I'm glad it's out of the way. We're Kevin, Kevin can, I, can, I, can I just ask you a question as well, Kevin? You know, are, are you surprised, really, that uh, Guardiola just made the one substitution with Bernardo Silva on the, uh, the hour mark? You know, when, when you look at the, uh, the, the substitutes that they had on the bench, three centre-halves. You know, you've got Phil Foden, who I think is an exceptional talent. I thought he had an opportunity of coming on and trying to raise that tempo. I don't know what yeah. your thoughts are, but that's no, what I would have looked at uh, doing. I agree. I thought that's what I say. I think he, he after 60, 65 minutes, he could have changed it slightly, taken off one of the defensive midfield players, dropped Kevin back a little bit, brought Foden on, who who we know has got great tempo, great pace. He will chase the game. He will chase other players. Yeah, listen, it's a little bit of a surprise. In the Champions League games, when we've got five <coughs> substitutes, I think in all three of those games, Peppers used five substitutes. Yesterday, we only used one substitute and even when he was going to bring Foden on it was something like 88 minutes but after the game Pep complained that there aren't there isn't the opportunity to play five substitutes but he only he only brought one on which Pep is a little bit cautious when we play Liverpool and he even almost admitted that after the game yesterday when he said there is a point in the game when if you can't win it you certainly can't afford to lose it and that's not Pep, is it? That's not Pep style. You know, Pep will try and win a game until the 90th minute, the 92nd minute. So, yeah, I was a little bit surprised. I was a little bit surprised that the, the, the bench was as defensive as it was for Pep. And I was a little bit surprised that he didn't bring Foden on earlier. Let's get Paul's view now. And just before Paul answers, 
Um, one of the reasons I phrased the question like I did is because I asked a young lad called Nathan, who you'll have come across before on the podcast, oh, no, 19, 20 years of age, if he wanted to be on the uh, the podcast today. And uh, and he said to me, no, he, he didn't he didn't have his mojo at the moment about football. He said yesterday and he said, I don't want to come on, but you can say this if you want. And this is a, a guy who goes home and away or certainly went home and away with City. And he said, um, while the game was on yesterday, I washed my car. And, uh, and I really wasn't interested in it at all. And I've seen quite a few people, you know, um, not me, not, not you, Kevin and David. And I don't know about Paul, we'll ask him in a second. But I've, I've seen other people saying that, you know, they, they don't enjoy the games at the moment uh, as much because of the situation we're in. And they've lost a lot of interest. So that's one of the reasons why I'm asking it like this. What about you, Paul? Sorry, I'll throw... <laughs> Just for the moment, I'm going. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to actually stop Paul while we while he hopefully gets something out in terms of a better signal. Um, but obviously, the fact that our fan, who is as committed as Nathan, who is a home and awayer, saying that does that surprise you, David? That there are fans who feel that way. No, I'm not overly surprised at all. To be honest with you, um, you know, my my wife Fiona is a an avid Tottenham Hotspur fan. And, you know, she, she loves football and she will watch most games, you know, so I've got the perfect wife for me. But there are times where there's a football match on and she's got no, well, she doesn't want to watch it. There's no atmosphere. VAR, has, for me, has completely ruined the game, you know, especially with this handball situation going around at this moment in time. Um, and, you know, it, it's, you've got nothing to talk about. You, you, you can't even go into the pub now, obviously, or you can't go to a restaurant. You can't go and, you know, have a, have a chat with somebody else. It's just the world that we're living in at this moment in time. But, you know, football, for, for her especially, uh, has been lost. She's, she's lost a, a lot of love for football because of what's gone on. You know, no fans, um, as I said, with the VAR, has just, just killed it in certain respects. Uh, and I have to a certain degree, you know, I'm a big rugby fan, you know, and I've been watching a lot of the, the rugby down from the Southern Hemisphere where there's 30, 40,000 people watching games, you know, and, and it is totally different down there. Yes, I know they have the situation sorted. Um, I know you were very fortunate to go to see Wigan and Chorley and, you know, I'm very jealous that you, you went along to see that, you know, and the sooner that we can get some fans back into the stadium, the better. Um, and you look at some of these smaller clubs, not being disrespectful, going to a bigger club, and it's like you're on an equal footing because there's no or home fans having a go at you. Can you imagine back in my day, you know, um, an away group coming to, to Main Road where there's like 40-odd thousand people, you know, frenetic atmosphere, and you think, well, I'm, I'm going to be slightly overwhelmed here. You know, what, what, what's going on? But then if you go to Main Road and it's an empty stadium... It's virtually like, you know, us versus them, you know, and there's no backing from the, the fans. And that's that's a huge thing for me when you haven't got fans. You know, there's no build-up. You don't see the fans outside the stadium. You don't get a buzz as a football player going on a coach and seeing all the fans there, you know. And so, yeah, I, I've lost a little bit of love for football. My wife definitely has. Um, but the sooner that we come back to it, sooner the stadium is, is being filled, it'll only be partial to start off with. Um, the better, you know, it's, it's not been great. It's not been great viewing. Um, I do think the, um, the scheduling has obviously been very difficult as well, um, especially for, for clubs like City who have been in Europe, 
Um, you know, Tottenham, for example, having to play on a you know a Sunday morning as such. Uh, and so it's, it's difficult. I can understand why some of the broadcasters have done it because they want to try and give an opportunity to fans out there to see as many games as possible. But, you know, when was the last time that we had, you know, two or three games kicking off at 3 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? We haven't had that for I don't know how long. Uh, and so you see teams kicking off at 12.30, 2.30, 4 o'clock, 8 o'clock. So I can understand what they're doing, but for me... You know, give, give us back the 3 p.m. slots, get fans back into the stadium and we'll be a lot, lot more happier. Well, it was mentioned earlier about the, the substitutes thing and Pep at the press conference uh, on Friday, which I'm able to see as a journalist, um, he was talking a lot about wanting to return. It's not the first time it's been mentioned, mind you, but he wanted to return to five substitutes as we had in the immediate resumption after the first lockdown. And he understood his logic and he said it was all about protecting players and overplaying them. Although at the moment, every three days doesn't seem an awful lot different than when City are playing at their peak anyway. Um, but Leroy, who contacted us when I said, you know, what topics would you like us to discuss tonight? As you've already alluded to, uh, mentioned that he's been moaning about not having five subs and obviously we know that Jurgen Klopp's been said much the same thing, and yet he didn't use even his three substitutes against Liverpool. Um, the Aston Villa manager, I think, or chairman, somebody from Aston Villa, has said yeah. that he's absolutely against it, uh, that it should stay at three. I can only speak personally. I am a City fan, I don't deny that, but I think it should stay at three. Um, I think that five gives too much of an advantage to... Uh, the, the big clubs. And as we saw in the Champions League game last week, the second City scored a second goal. City made mass substitutions. So did Olympiacos. And effectively, the game was over. Olympiacos had given up and City had thought, right, we've won it now. We'll rest the players for Liverpool. And I think that's one of the big problems with having mass substitutions. Before David gives us a verdict on that one, um, what about you, Kevin? Yeah, well, I would listen I'm absolutely totally biased about it. So if Pep thinks we need five substitutes, I'll go with it. But if I'm an Aston Villa fan or a West Ham fan or a team who has not got the money in the squad that we've got, I'm looking for three substitutes. So um, the, the rule in the Premier League is that every club gets a vote. And if the, the clubs generally have voted against five substitutes, I'm happy with that, you know, because that's the fairness of the game. We were all anti this um, uh, this big picture, this big project a few weeks ago because it was about the top six having a, a monopoly. And if 20 clubs have the opportunity to take a vote and the majority of them say, let's go with three substitutes, as much as that probably doesn't suit City or Pep, I'm happy to go with what the majority decide. I wonder, I wonder how many clubs who are not involved in Europe voted for the three three substitutes. So that would be an interesting one. Yeah, I think I think the vote went 14-6, didn't it? So I think there are six clubs in Europe. Is that right? I think there are six clubs in Europe and the six clubs voted for five substitutes and all the other teams who took the vote voted for three substitutes. But I understand that, you know, football is a... You've got to look after your own interests first. And why would the clubs that think giving the top six a greater opportunity would benefit them. They're certainly not going to do that. So I understand it. 
I, I think from my point of view, if, if Pep thinks we should have five, that's probably what I would prefer. But from a bigger picture, I do understand why the teams outside the, the European group would not vote for it. Let's try Paul again now. Let's see if the technology is working it better. I didn't mean to <laughs> mute you before, Paul, and I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> so okay. go on, tell us what you, you've been listening to it all, I presume. What, what do you think? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, mean, I was going to ask David something because there's been a lot of people going on about um, the players looking tired. You know, you're, you're an ex-pro, so we're playing three games a week at the moment. You know, I know people saying, oh, you know, they paid lots of money and they, they've got, you know, they, all they do is train and finally, you know, finally tune up. You get the question, don't you, David? You know, what, what, what do you think of it all? Well, I would say I, I, I go back to the days when I first started, when I was at Plymouth Argyle as a, as a, as a young player, uh, making my debut when I was 18 years of age. We only used to have one substitute, by the, by the way, back in those days at Christmas time. And you used yeah. to have three games in the space of like, you know, three, four days or four days. Um, but we used to be able to cope with it. Um, nowadays, squads have, uh, a, or teams do have a, a, a generous squad to, to go from, what, 25, 26 players, you know, to, to rotate. You know, back in those days, it was a case of, like, I prefer to be playing and training because I knew on a Tuesday morning, for example, you know, they would run the Gingangoolies off us. Um, but if we had a game on the Wednesday, that wasn't the case. You know, it's not I'm saying that I, I, I didn't like any hard work, so I used to love hard work. Um, but give us an opportunity of playing a game, you know, uh, two or three games a week. That will suit me down to the ground. You know, I know a lot of players um, have got uh, games coming up with the, the, the Nations League as well. So there's no respite for, for managers and, and clubs um, because most of the players from Manchester City, for example, will be involved in internationals these, these next two weeks. So there's not going to be any respite. Um, and that is the difficult thing. People turned around and said, well, you know, they had their lockdown period, but you still had the, the time where you needed to get yourself fit. You needed to get out and, and, and be with somebody else. You know, it was a, an isolation to start off with. Very difficult um, to tr try and recharge batteries. How long it's going to take for, for players to recharge batteries, I'm not quite so sure. And this is where the sports scientist is going to earn their corn because they will be letting the managers know exactly what sort of um, endurance they have, what sort of capabilities they have to, 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 to play games. And a lot of the managers now will be guided by their sports scientists. Let me ask you a question now on behalf of Stephen from Berry Branch, the supporters club, which is about the game against Liverpool. And he wants the subject of diving and cheating to be brought up now. Um, you know, obviously his accusation being that Liverpool with players like Mo Salah, who's been highlighted a lot recently, um, you know, have done a lot of diving and cheating. Um, is it becoming more prevalent in the game? Is it something that City are exempt from? Uh, and what needs to be done? I mean, obviously, we've got VAR now. You would think that with all this technology, I'm, I'm not a fan of VAR, but if you're going to use VAR, one of the things it can be used for is to identify simulated diving and cheating. So how do you feel about that? Should we give Paul a try? Because he's he's moved to a new location now. Let's see if we've, if we've got him working yet. The internet was very poor in the east annex of me, uh, me chateau, so I've moved over to the <laughs> west annex now. Um, <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I, I watched that game again yesterday. I think uh, David said earlier um, that the defense, our defence looked a bit uh, nervous. I'd be nervous as well playing against a load of ballerinas. 
because as, as soon as you breathed on one of them, they were falling over. I mean, the way Mo Salah dives around, he's, he's got like springs in his shoes. Um, it's embarrassing, to be honest with you. Um, I used to play rugby. Um, I know how hard it is to put a 15-stone man on his backside if he doesn't want to go over. The way these, these, these so-called professionals now are diving around and winning penalties... You don't win a penalty. Surely you're awarded a penalty. You know, it's part of the game now and it's embarrassing. I mean, you, you must look at that now, David, and think, oh, my God, what, what are they doing? Would, would you have a player like that in your team if you were playing now? Would you, would you want to be associated with that? No, I, I wouldn't want it. But um, I can't turn around and say it's never happened because it has. Because I won't name the person involved himself, but he was a, he was a Dutch international who uh, used to practice diving in, in the box on a, on a Friday. He used to get a couple of the players and he used to, you know, do the leading leg, etc. And he was really good at doing it. Um, but that, that's the way that he did it. And it was just like, well, that's a new thing I, I've, I've never seen before. And that was like in the early 90s. But in respect of everything now, um, with players diving around, listen, you only have to touch them with a fingernail and they go down. Now, that's the only good thing about VAR, to see if it is conclusive evidence, is that, you know, <laughs> simulation. Um, and to be honest with you, the sooner it goes out the game... Listen, I'm a, I'm a massive rugby fan as well. I, I played rugby when I was 14, 15. I had the opportunity of being a rugby player. Um, and those things never happened back in the day and doesn't happen now. You know, you only have to watch the rugby and you see, as you're saying, the big hits come in, etc. You don't ever see a rugby player feigning injury. You never see that. But with football players, you touch them slightly and they go down holding their head and think, of, well, you know, I touched his ankle. Why is he holding his head? <laughs> True. And it, it, there was big instances of that yesterday. And I, I just think that, you know, it needs to be called out more. And I think that there was a lot of people speaking on, the, on social media today and highlighting a lot of instances of it. And, you know, and they, they're even the, the pundits and the commentators are kind of, oh, you know, we're, oh, no, it's definitely, definitely a touch there. Yeah, there's a touch, but there's, there's a touch. Like Sterling, where Sterling was, you know, uh, he was brought down, but he stayed on his feet. If it had gone down, he'd have got a, a free kick maybe or a penalty. It's, it's, it's not right, and it needs calling out. We've got the technology. It needs calling out. I, I sort of said today on Twitter, it may be, you know, if I was interviewing these players after the game, I'd pull them up on it. I'd embarrass them in front of everyone and sort of like say to, you know, you must be embarrassed that dive you did, when, you know, where you got booked. And, you know, it, it needs calling out. Yeah, listen, I, I don't disagree with you. You know, the, the sooner that's taken out of the game, the better. You know, there, there are far too many players out there, you know, who, who are quite able to go down in the box quite easily you know, to feign a little bit of injury, etc., to make it feel as, as though it look, looks a lot worse than what it is. Um, the sooner it comes out of our game, the better. But, uh, you know, hopefully with VAR, etc., they can see these things, you know, tell the referee, hey, listen, that warrants a yellow card, that warrants a red card, etc. Um, you know, how, how many players have you actually seen being given a red card for simulation? Not that many. Yeah, I think I mean, if you started to do that, then all of a sudden you might think twice about doing it. Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, VAR has been used to give some quite ridiculous offside decisions. You know, the example of Bamford at Crystal Palace, 
was ridiculous. He's pointing where he wants the ball and, and they're saying that his arm's offside, but you can't score a goal with your arm anyhow, so I never know how that can be offside. But actually, in terms of penalties, they're not called out often enough and the reality is that the slightest bit of contact and generally penalties are given. Nobody gets softer penalties than either Mane or Salah. And that's not me just being biased, even though I don't like them, although Mane, I think, is a fantastic footballer, by the way. But you give them the opportunity to go down and they'll do that. But even VAR, there was one a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember who, West Ham. At West Ham when, uh, sorry, Liverpool played West Ham at Anfield, you know, where there's hardly any contact with uh, Salah. And, you know, the way that he goes down, it's clear that that, it's theatrical, but VAR looks at that. And because there has been the slightest contact, they will never change their minds on that, unfortunately. I thought yesterday it was a crazy challenge by Carl Walker. It was a crazy challenge. And you have to give a penalty for that, I think. But even the way that Mane went down is quite theatrical. You know, he's... he's uh, Maybe sometimes these players think that they have to over... At one time, you had to over-exaggerate the fall to get the penalty. I don't think you need to do that these days with VAR. But the power is in the hands of the officials, and they're not strong enough. They're not strong enough on anything to do with decisions like this. If the referee is asked to go over and view a monitor for a penalty these days, generally you know that he's going to give the penalty. Because somebody else has said to him, I think that's a penalty. Go and have a look, will you? And they'll have a look and he'll give the penalty. VAR is ruining the game. I said, you, you know, Ian, I said this. That very first game that we had at home when we played Tottenham Hotspur, when we had a goal disallowed in the last minute when the ball brushed um, Laporte's shoulder, Jesus scored. I said, football is dead. Football mm. was dead for me that day because if... I knew then that that was a sign of things to come and I've not been proved wrong. And actually, even though it worked in our favour and we missed a penalty, that's not a penalty for me against Gomez. It's not a penalty. It's a ball in that you can't get out of the way of. Gomez, he's trying to get his hand out of the way, actually. He can't get your hand out of the way, but because the penalty was given earlier in the day for Leicester against Wolves, where that player is trying to get his hand out of the way. It's almost as if there's, you know, they're all in that room at Stockley Park and, and there's that handball by Gomez. Somebody in Stockley Park has said, yeah, well, I, I gave the one earlier, by the way, against Leicester. So I think you're going to have to give that one. It, the, the, game is, the game is dead. I think at one time, most people thought when VAR was coming in, it was going to be a good thing because it would clear up clear and obvious. I don't even know what that is anymore. So uh, going back to the original bit, do Liverpool have players in their team that dive on a regular basis? Yes, but they will continue to do it when the decisions work in their favour. I'm sorry, the, 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 the strange thing for me, because obviously I, you know, I do work in broadcasting as well, is that you know I went down to Stockley Park and, and I had all these, these meetings down there and they went through obviously the clear and obvious situations. Um, but also... If you notice this year, they have the monitor to use. They also had it last year, but none of the referees use the monitors. And that was really strange. I'm saying, I remember going to Selhurst Park one day and the monitor was over the gantry opposite where the, the dugouts were. 
and it was a long way for the referee to go. It was the same with Bournemouth as well. They've got one exactly the same, right on the opposite side to where the tunnel is. But I never saw referees using the monitor last year. All of a sudden now there is this guidance to go and see the monitor. You know, is this like, like you're saying, Kevin, somebody from Stockley Park is saying, oh, you need to go and view that. You need to go and see that. Now, in respect of the penalties, how can, how can you defend a cross in a, you know, an unnatural position? You know, you've got to have balance. If your hand is so far away from your body, I could understand that, given a penalty. But if your hand is no more than, what, six inches from your torso, how can you give that? You, you know, I, I find that really, really strange, you know. And what you said about Bamford, you know, that is possibly one of the worst decisions I've ever seen for VAR because he's pointing where he wants the ball. You know, like I said to, to Ian at the beginning, you know, VAR for me has been killing the game. You know, we've had so many different rules about the offside. Remember back in the day, there used to have to be uh, a gap between the striker and the defender. But always, always you gave the advantage to the striker. And nowadays, you're talking a fingernail, you're talking about a toe. You know, if you, if you take a size 10 instead of a size 9, you're offside. Well, the, the, the starting point for me always seems to be that Stockley Park are looking to disallow a goal, not to give it, mm. if you understand what I mean. They'll they look for a very slight offside decision. And naturally, because the, the advantage should be given to the striker, UEFA, FIFA, whoever it was, said that years and years ago, if you can't tell at the very first glance that the player's offside, give the goal. But then they, yesterday um, at Arsenal, Villa scored after 48 seconds. And it took them three minutes and 14 seconds to decide whether the player was in an offside position that was obstructing the goalkeeper. Three minutes and 14 seconds, when it only took 48 seconds for the goal to be scored from the start of the game. If it is not that obvious that the player is offside, give the goal. You know, I think most supporters would support that. And it, you know, we a have one. Obvious, a clear oh, and obvious mistake doesn't take three minutes, 14 seconds to, to work out, does it? You know, if you, can't, if, if you can't work it out in 30 seconds, whether it's a clear and obvious mistake, then it obviously isn't by virtue of the fact how long it's took you to do it. You know, yeah, they're, uh, never, they're never looking to give the goal. They never look on the basis of it being a positive. They, no. they're, not, they're not thinking, let's do what we can to give this goal. They're always looking on the basis, let's do what we can to call it offside. You know, that, that, that goal you'd mentioned uh, there, Kevin, uh, you know, the, the Arsenal goal, and saying that, you know, the, the player was in the, in, in the line of the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper never stood a chance. No way. Never, Not a chance. No way was he ever going to, you know, save that ball. You know, no. even if he was like two or three yards to the right-hand side, he still wouldn't have saved that ball. No. You know, and they've got to take that into consideration as well. Well, they, they can't. And I don't know where, how we change that, to be honest with you, because you know better than we do. You know, referees seem to become less part of the game than they were 20 years ago. There seemed to be some understanding between players and officials that, that the, the players had a relationship with the referee, that that was part of the game. That this seems so aloof now to me that, that, that there is a clear, there is a, almost like there's a, a class gap, if that's the right way of describing it, between referees and players. They don't want to 
speak to them. They don't want to have any relationship with them. They don't understand the game. Even though some of these referees, Martin Atkinson, who did the uh, Arsenal-Villa game, who has been an official for 20 years in, at the top level, he, didn't, he didn't understand the game. He doesn't understand that the goalkeeper was not getting there anyhow. So if you don't understand the game, you'll never get those decisions right. I think supporters understand the game better than the officials, even though the officials are part of the game. Don't you think that these these no personalities like they used to be in the foot, you know, years ago at football, the, the, I don't know the referee's a referee and he's there to referee, but he had a bit of personality about them and they had a bit of common sense. So they had the rules, but the rules were more of a guideline. So it's like for me now where it's like, you know, they said, you know, like we've just agreed on that that wasn't a handball yesterday, but the commentators and we all sort of go, but in you know, by the nature of the rule, you've got to give handball. Well, use a bit of common sense, and I think that's what's lacking in the world at the moment and everything. You know, you've got to it's as though you've got to put an exact rule down because someone will try and manipulate it. Just let the referees interpret that rule on certain occasions, and it the game flows, the game's better, and you know, clear and obvious mistakes won't get made then. Because Paul, just... they're not answerable. Oh. Sorry to interrupt, Paul, but they're not answerable yeah. either. The referee can make any decision that he wants to, and he's not answerable at the end of the game. Exactly. I think if the referee, and they shouldn't be on, put under too much pressure, but there, there would be nothing wrong in football after the game where every referee is is questioned within a certain criteria, but but the referee is asked a question: Why did you give that decision? Because yeah. there's nobody to answer to. It only takes one referee to have the uh, cojones to stand up and actually say for a decision like that, actually, I don't think it's a penalty that, so it's a corner. Mm. It only takes one of them to make that decision. And then hopefully, but the, the problem is, they probably think if they give that decision, that they won't get a game the following week. Mike I was Riley just going to say, my, my contribution to this debate, for what it's worth, is that I actually feel a little bit sorry for referees at the moment because all the power has been taken away from them. Um, when that decision was made yesterday, um, we saw the referee in this case go over and look at a monitor on the halfway line. And as he's making his way over, uh, my wife sat next to me saying, he's obviously not going to overrule it, um, no. even though the, the, they're making it look like he's now going to go and make his own decision. But the mere fact that the way VAR is being used is that Stockley Park, and let's leave it as, a, as an it rather than a person, because that's how it feels, that Stockley Park has said in his ear, we think this is a penalty, or this is an offside, or whatever it might be, uh, a dive, you know, whatever. Um, and so that when you trot over there, if the referee has the audacity, shall I suggest, to overrule something, that those people at Stockley Park are already going, yeah, but you've got it wrong, we've shown you the evidence. So it doesn't feel to me as if the referee has that, that free choice. I watched it in rugby league when replays and video referees were introduced. And it, I know it's slightly different because, you know, you can watch the, the replay 
in the stadium as well, which makes a big difference. People can actually see what the decision is that's being made. But nevertheless, it feels to me as if, you know, referees start to lose control that, you know, referees got to the point in rugby quite quickly where they were doing a, an air TV in the air to say, I'm not sure about this one and completely abdicating the decision to the Stockley Park people effectively. You know, now we're in a position where we see a player clearly offside when the ball's played to them, and I'm and I'm sitting there going, he's offside him, and then there's no whistle, there's no, and they carry on, and the guy runs after it, defender comes out, and eventually the, the striker touches the ball, and that's when they and then the they give offside. Yeah. You know, and you I think so because the referee and linesman have stopped making the decision. There's only two yeah. things I would say about that. First of all, yesterday the referee's initial response to the handball by Gomez, the referee and the assistant referee did not give a penalty. He went for a corner. Neither of them thought it was a penalty. Neither of them. The assistant referee did not wave his flag and the referee instantly did not give a penalty. It was only when the City players went over to the referee and saying, you know, then he goes over to the machine. And then I agree with you. He's, he's almost under too much pressure then because somebody at Stockley Park has said to him, I think that's a penalty and we've given one earlier today. So I think you better go and make it look like you're making a decision. The reality is we're telling you it's a penalty. But even VAR, by the way, is just a piece of machinery. VAR doesn't give a single decision. VAR's a piece of machinery. It's somebody at Stockley Park who's making these decisions. Well, let's, let's draw a line under under VAR because obviously yeah. we could talk about VAR forever. Oh, yeah, we'll be here forever. Let, let me just take a couple of minutes, if you don't mind, now just to ask a couple of questions to David, particularly about his own career and his own time at City. So, happy times at City, David. How would you summarise your time as a, as a City player? Oh, first and foremost, um, when I heard about uh, Manchester City coming in for me, it was a, it was going to be a fantastic year. Not only was uh, it was a case that I made my debut for Wales against England, I was also getting married that summer as well, and um, you know having the opportunity of moving to uh, a huge club, not being disrespectful to, to Plymouth Argyle, but Manchester City is you know great history, great club, uh, huge fan base, etc. So, so coming up there was, you know, just phenomenal. And the first season, as you, as you know, Ian, you know, I was virtually joint do top goal scorer. I was a junior blue player of the year, um, scored a few uh, half decent goals, you know, got a couple of the, got a couple of the uh, gold, goal of the month awards. Um, and obviously getting promoted at the end of the year, which was just, uh, you know, phenomenal. Uh, I know we had some issues along the way, you know, Notts County being one. You know where fans came into the uh, the changing room area, uh, and that wasn't particularly nice. Um, but then to to finish by beating Charlton at home, there's supposed to be 45. There might have been 55, 60,000 people. You know, all along the gangways. You know, it was a phenomenal day. I scored two goals. You know, myself that day, uh, and it was and it was great. You know, getting promoted into the into the first division as it was was a you know. A great accolade after what was a, a tremendous season, you know, finishing third at, as it was. I think Oxford United uh, were, were champions. And then the, the next year, I think we were we finished about 15th or 15th, 16th or something like that in the league. Uh, and then all of a sudden I found out I was going. And uh, that was a, a huge shock for me. Um, I vir virtually didn't miss a game in the two years I was there. And uh, when I found this out, I was, you know, a little bit devastated. 
and as it materialised, you know, leaving, you know, Manchester City to go down to Coventry was not the move that I was thinking that was going to happen. I still had another a year on my contract. Um, so I, I was disappointed how it ended up. You know, I know that we've had discussions about Billy McNeil. Um, you know, they weren't good times at times with him. He was very much a, a Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, and at times he made my life an absolute misery. And, um, you know, I never spoke to the, the gentleman ever again uh, after I left Man City. Um, I know, unfortunately, he's passed away. You know, that, that's a sad occasion as well for not only for Manchester City, but also for Celtic and also Scotland, obviously the wife and, and, and you know, the family. But, you know, I, I was disappointed how I left. Uh, very disappointed. People still don't understand, you know, why I left, how I left. They all thought it's because... You know, I had one more game to, to get to 100 and then I had to, they had to fork out a load of money. It wasn't the case. Uh, Billy McNeil wanted to, to sign Pe uh, Perry Sucklin. Uh, John Silla and George Curtis of Coventry, they wanted me. They didn't want the... Well, they took a gamble. They thought, right, OK, we're never going to get David Phillips, but we'll ask for him. And as it materialised, the, the, the management turned around and said, yeah, OK, no problem. So, you know, I was very disappointed. Um, you know, I've got lots of stories about, you know, what went on, what, what has happened, you know, which I won't divulge at the moment uh, and maybe leave that for, for another time. But I really enjoyed my time at Manchester City. I made some fantastic friends there. Uh, you know, the fans were unbelievable. Um, you know, a great time. And, and I really enjoyed my two years there. Well, I can say that having watched every minute of every game you played, David, and having watched an awful lot of City players down the years, um, there are lots of heroes that I've got and players that I like watching. But you're right up there with them. Um, you were a, a beautifully gifted natural talent. As you say, you scored some wonderful goals. And I'm so glad that you came to my club and played for my club. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of the joys of being a football fan that you get to speak to your heroes. So you're one of them. So, David, thank you. Um, no, very, very, very kind of you to say that, Ian, you know, and, uh, you know, I really respect that. Um, you know, I haven't been up to, to uh, the new stadium at all since it's, it's been built. You know, uh, very infrequently do I ever go back to Main Road, you know, to ever watch a game. It's always gone back as a, as a broadcaster as such. Uh, and I hope that once the stadium starts being filled with, with people again, that, you know, I get an invite to come up to, uh, to City to watch them play, you know, uh, and I can't wait for that to happen. You know, I had fantastic memories, you know, for the two years I was there. Yes, there were times where I was thinking, why am I here? Because basically of the, the, the manager, etc. Um, but overall, you know, the, the two years were great and I wish it could have been expanded a little bit longer. I know I can't speak for Kevin, but I know him well enough that um, having heard you there say what you've just said, I wouldn't be surprised if it, when things get back to normal, you might not get an invite off Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, Kev. <laughs> I've already been, I've already made a note. Yeah, I'm surprised you've never been back. It, 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 it does amaze me sometimes that, uh, you know, we speak to people and, and they've never been invited back. And yet we have other people who are invited all the time. So... I have made a note, David, yeah, so as soon as things, the football is back up and running, expect us to be in touch. Yeah, <laughs> that will be very kind of you, Kevin. Let me ask you one more question, David, because tomorrow I'm doing an interview for BBC Radio Derby, and you know Derby, the Sheikh Mansur's um, cousin is uh, allegedly going to move in there and, and, uh, and take over, and the reason they want to speak to me is to ask me what 
I thought of the impact and the, the positives, or are there any negatives indeed, of the shape coming into Manchester City? Um, you were a player in an, a di very different era of Manchester City than the way it is now. Um, you've got that extra advantage of being a bit more of an outsider, even though you played for the club. What would you say? Would you say that the impact of the of the shake? Uh, it seems an obvious question to a lot of people because they'll say, "Look at all the trophies." But do, do you do you see it very much as a positive, or do you see any negatives at all in what's happened since Sheikh Mansur came into City? Well, you have to you have to look at uh, you know the environment surrounding the ground as well. You know, it's, it's not just building the ground and, you know, the uh, the other little stadiums are attached to it as well. But you, you have to think about what business it actually brings to the people in and around the ground as well. You know, not that far away it brings a lot of business in and around. Um, and listen, it's been fantastic, you know, for, for him to come along and invest a load of money into in such, such a fabulous club. Um, now, in, in respect to Derby County, again, you know, that, that was a, a decent club. It's got a fantastic stadium. So, uh, you know, putting money into that, who knows what will happen. But uh, first and foremost, you know, with what's going on at Manchester City, you know, it, it's been a, an absolute revelation as far as I'm concerned. You know, who would have thought we'd have been able to, to get the likes of uh, Pep Guardiola as a, a manager to have all these, you know, phenomenal players uh, coming in and out the, the, the city um, and you just have to look at the, the, the training complex as well to understand it's one of the best in the world. Right, I'm going to rattle through it. Thank you can for I, that, Can David. I just interrupt there for one second, uh, Ian? Just Feel free, not, Kevin. Not, not one to put David on the spot, of course, but if memory serves me right, you played for Nottingham Forest, David, so the last yeah. thing you'd want is for Derby County to happen. <laughs> well, you know, listen, listen, at the end of the day, whatever happens, whatever be, you know, will be, to be honest with you, you know, but Nottingham Forest at the moment... Um, you know, they, they've got a, a wealthy benefactor in there at this moment in time. You know, they, they, they sacked uh, Lamucci, the, uh, the manager, very early on in uh, this season. Um, Chris Hewton has gone in there, who is a man I highly respect and you know, regards for him. Um, and again, they want to bring back the good days at, at Nottingham Forest. You know, what happens over at Derby happens over at Derby. You know, there is that you know, mass thing like Manchester United and Manchester City, you know, don't particularly like each other. Uh, and whatever they go and do, let them go and do it. But, you know, Nottingham Forest will always say they're, they're bigger than Derby. You know, they've won European Cups, etc. you know, as far as they're concerned. Um, and that's the one thing for, for, for me it, it, with Manchester City. You know, we need to win that European Cup. Right, let me rattle through a few questions now that um, in the last 10 minutes or so that we've got uh, from a couple of people who've contacted me. Muzza uh, says he wants to know the thoughts from everyone um, on when everybody's fit, who are your ideal front three and who, how does that front three compare to other front threes around the world? Oh, that's, that's, that's a tough question, isn't it? You know, at the end, end of the day, like you're saying, if they're fit, you know, uh, that has been a problem this year with, uh, with Jesus and, and Aguero. You know, you look at the goals uh, scored last year, even though that uh, City finished well behind Liverpool last year, you know, this time last year, I think I, I put down as Man City scoring 27 goals. This year, they've scored, what, nine or ten? So there is a situation there where, as far as I'm concerned, yes, we'll talk about the front three, but investment, I thought that Guardiola would have been better getting another striker. If you look at, for example, Liverpool, you know, 
Salah, Mane, Firmino, and you didn't think that Jota would ever come into the equation. But don't forget, they've got Origi as well. So they've got five strikers. Manchester City, Jesus, uh, Aguero as mainly out strikers. You've got Mares one side, you've got Sterling another. But you want, I'm going to say Sterling, what is it, 20 goals last year in the Premier League? You know, phenomenal season last year. Um, I thought, you know, for me, Man City should have gone and got another striker this year. But if you're asking me the question, I, I, I would have to say, you know, Aguero has to be the front man. You have to have Sterling one side. You might have to go and play Jesus as well and maybe just have to change a little, little bit the formation around. You know, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Mares is when he comes in, when he plays, and when he plays, you know, he's, he's a difficult uh, character to, to get hold of. But for me, inconsistent as far as I'm concerned. So in reflect of the, uh, the front three, that's a difficult one, Ian. I'll let Kevin sort that one out. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's got to be Aguero and Sterling. And based on where we currently are, you would probably have to say Mares, to be honest with you. But, you know, in six months, Sam, we might, we might be choosing Torres as an option rather than, uh, uh, than Mares. But the, you, you, at the moment, you would have to say Mares, uh, Aguero and Sterling. How that compares to other top threes around the world is, is very difficult uh, to say, to be honest with you. Listen, Mane and Salah at Liverpool, unfortunately, as a pair, are fantastic, aren't they? And generally, they will play together, you know. I'm not particularly a fan of Firmino, but Jota has come in and done well. So you would probably say Mane, Salah, Salah and, and Jota. Fantastic as well. Um, comparing them to other teams, though, is very difficult because then it comes down to formations and, you know, would strikers be as good as they are, for instance, without Kevin De Bruyne playing in the team? So that, that the second part of the question is difficult for me. And whilst it might not be popular with a lot of City fans, currently, I would have to say Mares, Aguero and Sterling. Oh. Yeah, I, I'm, I tend to have to agree with Kevin, really. Um, it, it makes you wonder whether we should uh, try and side Tom Daly uh, and then we can compete with Liverpool then so we can, you know, get him <laughs> diving around it. Before, so. Yeah, that Paul. Uh, my three would be not dissimilar to to David's, I suppose. I think my front three, um, the best front three City have got, he says, tongue in cheek, is Sterling on the right, Sane on the left, and Aguero down the middle. Now, in the absence of Leroy Sane, who we know has gone, and I would have hung on to at all costs, I think I would play Jesus on the left, uh, re return Raheem Sterling to the right, where I think he's much more effective and play Sergio Aguero down the middle with Torres coming along. And for me, Mares at the moment doesn't deserve a place in the team and would not be in my team. Um, so, strong opinion. There you go. That's from Mills of that question. You've probably lost about 10,000 followers now because you've uh, you've gone against the fanboys' decisions. They won't Listen, like that. <laughs> it's, there's no agenda. It's just purely based absolutely, on what you see on the pitch. Yeah, yeah absolutely, uh, mate. Man City Collect, um, and here's a nice positive one, it gives you the scope to be positive anyway, um, says well, he wants to talk to us about his opinion that fans are writing City off too early and that the quadruple is still on. <laughs> well, it's still on because we're still in every competition, so, you know, you can't write us off, to be honest with you. You don't um, seem to stand out with a lot of conviction, though, Kevin. Well, well... <laughs> 
I think it's going to be the strangest of seasons. Listen, over the course of the weekend, you know, Southampton were were, were top of the league, weren't they? Um, then Leicester have become top of the league. Liverpool had the chance to go top of the league if they'd have won at, at the Etihad. Aston Villa, who have played the same number of games as us, therefore have got a game in hand. If they win their game in hand, which is us, they would be top of the league. Everton were top of the league for the first four or five games. It's going to be a crazy season for whatever reason. I think a lot of it is down to no fans being in the stadium. There is no fear factor involved. You know, no team is going to another stadium like uh, the Etihad or or Old Trafford or Anfield with any fear factor. You know, there's no opposition. There's no fans in there that they're going to be worried about. I think, you know, you can hear... Maybe David might understand this a little bit better. You can hear the game a little bit better. So, you know, you're not... You can talk to your colleagues on the pitch a little bit better. Maybe maybe that encourages you to motivate each other a little bit stronger. I think one of 10 teams could win the Premier League this season. Seriously, I think one of 10 teams could win it. And we are only in that 10. I wouldn't automatically say that if we don't win it, Liverpool win it. Because I think we just don't know what's going to happen. The weirdest results have been happening. I would have thought after Aston Villa winning the first four games and then losing two games that they would have started to fall away but they've gone to uh, they've gone to the Emirates and won 3-0 comfortably it could have been 4 or 5 so, you forgot about the 7-2 as well against Liverpool yeah absolutely but you know who would have put as much as it was fantastic for us as City fans to see that 7-2 you would never have put any money you'd, you'd have put more money on Liverpool winning 7-2 than Villa Something strange is happening in football that are lots of reasons and we don't know all of them. There's a combination of different ones. But of course, we are still in all four competitions. When we won the domestic treble a couple of seasons ago, even the most optimistic City fan would not have said that we could have won the domestic treble because even uh, Lord Ferguson across the road said when United never won it, nobody will ever win the domestic treble, he said. It's an impossibility especially if you're a team that's playing in Europe on a regular basis. So I would never count a, a team that Pep manages out of winning all four. Would I put any of my money on it? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I, I might just have a, might have a pound on it, Kevin, and that'd be about it. But like <laughs> you said, you know, you know, the domestic treble is fantastic, etc. But I know that, you know, Guardiola wants to win the, the, the Champions League and, and so does all City fans. And that is obviously, you know, the, the piece of resistance, as to say. But in respect of, um, you know, can can City still win the league? Yeah, of course they can. You know, at the end of the day, they're only six points behind uh, Leicester at the moment in time. And as you're right to say, they, they've got a game in hand. You know, like I said, this year is a very, very peculiar season. And the big thing for me is that it's because there's empty stadia. And, you know, that is why you have these freak results all the time. Because, like I said to you before, you know, if I was a player going to Anfield, for example, I'd be like, oh, my God, look at the cop, look at this, look at that, whatever. Um, and they would actually get you nervous going into a game as such. Obviously, when the game starts, you, you forget about all that. But, you know, an empty stadium makes it, the job a lot easier for a professional footballer, I tell you now. There's no home advantage, is there? No, and no, there's, there's, no, no... there's no home advantage whatsoever, and and, and that is the thing that where I, I I'm turning around and saying, you know, anyone could win the league this year. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. 
no receptions for the city coach when they arrive at Liverpool. All, all that, it's all gone, isn't it? Right, two <laughs> questions to sort of conclude, really. But they're and they're relevant to the the hopes of the quadruple, and actually quite big questions. So you'll you'll probably just need to be economic with your words, and the time we've got left. Which Blue Ranger, Blue Ranger says, we talked about the front three. Um, what's our midfield three? What's the best three now? I'll I'll start by saying, as I've said consistently, that I'm not a huge fan of Rodri. Um, I think he um, is too slow for me. I know there's a lot of City fans out there who are not fans of Gundogan, but if I was picking one defensive midfielder in the middle of those three, then it would be Gundogan. And for me personally, I'd probably pick, uh, well, Kevin De Bruyne is the obvious one, and then one other, um, and that other one... That, that's a little bit more up in the air, so I'm not going to I'm not going to commit on that. I'm going to ask you three. You know, that, what's your midfield three? Uh, for me, uh, it'd be De Bruyne. I like Rodri. You know, for the time that I saw him, and David Silva, bring him back. We need him. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't disagree <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, it's a difficult one if we're only playing three. But if I'm playing three, uh, Fernandinho, Kevin De Bruyne. And Phil Foden. What about you, Paul? <laughs> sounds like sounds like I'm blowing smoke up uh, Kevin's backside here. But I agree on I, I agree on exactly what he just said there. Uh, you, you know my feelings on uh, Foden. I've 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 heard them quite a few times. But at the moment, he's on fire, and he he, he can change that game for us. So at the moment. Um, you know, the current situation, I'd have to have Foden in there as well. So yeah, I, I, I agree with Kevin on that. There's two other, there's too many players around that aren't performing at the moment, and um, you know, and, and to be honest with you, Kevin De Bruyne is one of them. Um, you know, he, he's he's a fantastic player, but he's he's just looks a little little bit off the pace so far this last couple of weeks. Just a bit uh, and that's, that's a difficult one, isn't it? You know, with, with, with De Bruyne, as I said to you, you know, you're always expecting a, a nine out of ten out of him. You know, yeah. and, and I totally agree. You know, with the boys in respect of Foden, I don't think I've seen Foden have a bad game. You know, the only time that he uh, has been a little bit naughty is when he was off off with England. Um, but uh, overall, you know, I've been very very impressed with him. And if you talk about having a, a ready-made substitute for David Silva, there's Phil Foden. Right, final question then is about defence. I'm going to make it part A and part B because I did promise to come back to the um, Cancelo right-footed left-back issue and I was lucky enough to see Glyn Pardo play at his very best and he was a right-footed left-back so I don't see why that is can be or would be a problem. Um, but in, um, So I, I, I'm just throwing that in as a quick one. The final question, it comes from Carl who's been on the podcast before um, always a good contributor as well and he is very optimistic now he says the Diaz-Laporte centre-back partnership is made in heaven so would you like to comment on that? Yeah I think you know with, with what Manchester City have gone and done in, in respect of players that they bought you know John Stones you know a few years ago Nathan Aki uh, who's, who's just recently come in uh, Eric Garcia who's, who's a youngster uh, you know, Otamende went, uh, where did he go? Was it Ben Freaker or something along those lines? You know, th these two look decent. You know, I've, I've known Emmerich Laporte since he's 17 years of age because I used to cover La Liga, you know, when he was playing for, for Athletic. 
uh, you know, great little prospect there. You know, the one thing that I always turn around and say, well, maybe the first five yards is where he might get caught out, but he's, you know, he's improved immeasurably in, on, on his uh, positional play. And I can't disagree with that. I think Diaz is, is, is an excellent signing. The two, uh, you know, work well together. Um, now, the, the difficulty one, what, as you said about Glimpardo, who played as a, a right-footed left-back, you know, difficult, obviously, Cancelo going in there. You know, Mendy not being there, Zinchenko's on the bench, you know, thinking, you know, is he going to leave anyway? Because I thought that one stage he was going. You know, and Angelino's over in, uh, in Leipzig. Um, so that's always a, a difficult position to be in. But, you know, if you've got to, to look at right-footed left-backs, you know, Paolo Maldini, you know, who was a right-footed left-back, you know, who made the left-back berth his own. Philipp Lahm as well, you know, German international, another good player. You know, a player that I played with at uh, Norwich City, Mark Bowen. You know, we were both relatively right-sided, but he played left-back, I played left-wing. But we were both, we actually had two good feet. So that helps, you know, and... How many, how many players now do you see who've got two good feet? Not that many. But, uh, you know, Cancelo was coming in to, to do a job. You know, the difficulty for me is that when he goes forward, wanting to cross the ball on the left-hand side, you know as a defender up against him, invariably, nine times out of ten, he's looking to come inside. You know, and that's where sometimes I think he has to be unpredictable if he is going to play in that position. So, but I do agree with you. Diaz and Laporte, two centre-halves. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to conclude the, the podcast there and say a, a huge, huge thank you to David Phillips, who we need to get back on this podcast again. Um, um, great insight and great thoughts and really appreciate your time, David. Um, thanks very much to Paul, who obviously is a regular on the podcast, and uh, to the gaffer, uh, the general secretary, Kevin Parker, <laughs> from the Supporters Club, who, uh, who has the best um, artificial... Is that a green screen behind you, that, uh, Kevin? Yeah, it's a green screen. It's not the wall. <laughs> uh, and for those who are listening and, and not watching if, if this doesn't make it in the video version um, then he's got the four four of the badges of City in history uh, behind him as well as wearing the new third pyjama kit as I call it um, <laughs> uh, to, to be on screen so uh, thanks very much to Charles Louis Group of course uh, the advisory business Chartered Mortgage Advisors look them up charleslouis.co.uk and tell them that, that I sent them sent you, in fact, to them. Um, in the meantime, City don't have a game next weekend. We'll still have a podcast. We'll record it on Sunday night UK time, so it'll be available for you to download late Sunday evening, probably. Um, so we will be here again next week. In the meantime, enjoy the week. Um, and remember the good news. Hopefully, we'll be back inside stadiums sometime next year as the vaccine is rolled out. Let's hope that that continues to be the right. Uh, thanks, chaps. And thank you for listening. Really appreciate it. Subscribe. It's free. It always is free to listen to it as well. And as always, it's always great to be a blue. <laughs>